So Tristan Harris uh, is is a is an ethicist, and um, he has done a a YouTube video that came out, I think, about a month ago, and it is it's quite shocking. Um, we will tweet it out uh, later. You, you really need to watch it. Uh, and then I watched that video and got him onto the podcast. And we spent an hour uh, last night, and he's going to be on with me again next week. He is warning that we are now in what he calls second contact. First contact was social media. And social media, its goal, not stated to you, but uh, the goal of social media to you was so you could connect and share with people and and your life would be easier and you can connect with your family. That's not what the goal was of the companies. The goal of the companies was engagement. Find ways to keep people engaged. And it has led to really addiction to social media. It has led to all of these problems the divisions in our countries are in our country is so deep right now much of it because of social media it has it has learned that if you keep people angry they engage longer so he says all of the child sexualization everything that is going on right now in our society stems from social media when he quit Google and said, you guys are not paying attention here. He's an ethicist. And he said, You're, you won't even listen to the ethics and the questions of ethics. You are, what do you mean you want, to, uh, you want them to engage longer? And so you know what you're doing with the dopamine. You know what you're doing. You're creating an actual addiction in people. This is unethical. And he left to warn now he says we are at uh, second contact with AI. And it is so important that you understand when we're talking about AI, most people think of Siri. That's not AI. Okay, that's, that's AI 2010. And the only thing that that does is try to interpret, and it makes very slow gains. Okay. In 2017 or 18, there was an entirely new engine released. And it was only in the laboratories of Google and everything else. It has not hit Siri, okay? And it's an entirely new engine. And it is the difference between a Model T and a jet engine. And this particular jet engine works 24-7, trying to make itself more powerful. He describes this as the atomic bomb in everyone's hand and an atomic bomb that does what atomic bombs don't do, makes itself more powerful every day. It is on double exponential growth. I told you two weeks ago um, about this YouTube video that I saw with him. And uh, I told you at the time that it was, and this was not programming, this just happened, and they only found out about it like two months ago by mistake. They had no idea it was developing this. It's developing uh, a human trait that adults have and kids have on reasoning. And in the beginning of the year, uh, it was at like a two-year-old, then halfway, uh, you know, six months later, it was at a six-year-old. And when I told you about it a couple of weeks ago, it was a nine-year-old. And the nine-year-old reasoning is this. When you tell your, when, it, when it's trying to get information, think of your nine-year-old, trying to get its own way, it, your child deals with you because it knows you 
And it's like, you know what? I can play mom and dad this way. If I say this, they'll say that, and then I can get what I want. Okay? It had the reasoning of a nine-year-old, and you're the adult. So it could manipulate you like a nine-year-old, and it could get its own way. I told him, I said on the podcast, I said, tell that story of what that really means. I said, because a nine-year-old is scary. And he said, oh, Glenn, that, that's, you got that from the, the YouTube thing. And I said, yeah. And he said, oh, that's so yesterday. He said, it's now in its 20s. So it is growing in knowledge at exponential rates. When you have social media, it was engagement. AI, its stated goal is intimacy. That it becomes intimate with you. And it creates something that you will bond with and never, ever leave. And it is, it, remember, it manipulates so he lays out all of the problems with this, and um, uh, he, he, it was nice to talk to somebody um, that knows so much more about it than I do, um, but is not living in la-la land. Uh, I asked him about AI, which is artificial intelligence, and that's very, very narrow on one thing, like Siri can't do anything except answer your question on what it can find either on your cloud or on the web. It can't really do anything. That's AI. That's what we've had. Uh, AGI is artificial general intelligence. General intelligence is what you are. You are a general intelligence being. You can be an expert on many things. You can know a little bit about a lot of things. Um, you can be really good at more than one thing. You have general intelligence, and you can expand that. The more you learn, the more you read, the more you do, the more general you become, and the more of an expert on any and everything in your life. Okay, But it requires you to do the work. Well, that's what AGI is. AGI is general intelligence, and it has to do the work. Well, it is doing the work. It's teaching. It's a, it has just taught itself chemistry without being asked. It taught itself Farsi without anyone knowing about it. It is teaching itself the most complex math that people, experts said, it may never be able to do this, solve these equations without quantum computing. It will not be able to solve these for years. It is now solving those because it is learning. It is teaching itself all of the time. I asked him, how far away are we? And I almost asked him if you even believe in it, because I've been talking about AGI and ASI, super intelligence, Stu, 25 years? As long as I've known you, yeah. Right. I absolutely believe. Um, Ray Kurzweil believes in it. But Ray Kurzweil is always getting hammered because he believes that it will be here by 2030, AGI. Okay? And that changes everything. That's when it will outmaneuver all of us. He says that's 2030. Others have been saying it will never happen the general consensus has been that it would happen uh, AGI and possibly ASI, if that's even possible, they said, by maybe 2050. Tristan, I said, how far away are we? And he said, I think we're probably two and a half years, maybe outside five. That's the general consensus now. The general consensus? The general consensus was... Not sure it could even ever happen. He is, um, 
you will when you watch him, you will see how sincere he is. Uh, he and his colleagues are trying their best to get a pause on this. This is not this is not ideal. Okay, you can say, oh well, China will continue to do whatever. But what he is saying is, we have twelve to maximum eighteen months. If we do not pause this in the next 12 months, he believes it could be the end or will eventually be the end of humanity. Not in the way Ray Kurzweil predicted. I've told you before, transhumanism is coming. And transhumanism, if you're a Star Trek fan, think of the board, Borg. The transhumanism is when we start to augment ourselves and put ourselves in line with the internet and artificial intelligence, and we become one with it. It's the singularity. That's why when Stephen Hawking was dying, his last prediction was the end of the Homo sapien by 2050. There will be no Homo sapiens. Because of transhumanism, I talked to Tristan about this transhumanism. And how evil and dangerous it really is. Uh, and he is not predicting the end of Homo sapiens uh, because of transhumanism. He is saying we do not make it as a species. And it may include all life on Earth if this needs more food, more energy. Um, because it will just continue to grow at the expense of whatever. It is ruthless. Folks, welcome back. I promised that I would be talking to Naomi Wolf. And guess what? Promises made, promises kept. I coined that term. Naomi, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. It's always so nice to be with you. you it's, it's fun to talk to you um, about a lot of stuff. I want to talk to you. Uh, I just wanted more of a general update, I guess, from you, if you have anything you want to share about, um, you know, what's going on with the Pfizer stuff and 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 the all the stuff that you have dug into so wonderfully and bravely and diligently. So what uh, let's just start there. Any thoughts you have with regard to any of that stuff? Yeah, so much has happened since we last spoke about that. Um, well, on a political level, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton had prepared to investigate Pfizer um, for malfeasance. And I note that he's just been impeached by the Tex Texas legislature. So I, I don't know, you know, the what's going on behind the scenes about that. But I, I am noticing that um, you know, we don't know why Tucker Carlson was booted from Fox exactly. There could have been any any number of reasons from Dominion, his coverage of the Dominion voting issue to his coverage of January 6th. But he was also very upfront about, about Pfizer and about the danger of the vaccines. And he let me talk about the danger of the vaccines, the mRNA injections too. Um, so these are two very, very, you know, high level, powerful people who are being targeted uh again i'm a journalist i don't have a smoking gun but it's it's really interesting because paxton was the first ag to go after pfizer um let's see we've had several new reports out uh, as your audience knows i've got a group of 3500 doctors and scientists who are going through the tens of thousands of um, documents released under court order um by the Food and Drug Administration, uh, against their will, they had asked the court to keep these documents hidden for 75 years. Um, and your audience knows that we've found in those documents that, you know, nothing less than the greatest crime against humanity in, in recorded history with a special focus on ruining reproduction. Um, and the most recent report, Report 72, uh, shows that Pfizer actually discarded thousands of vaccinated subjects in November of 2020 who had COVID so that they could say 
that the injection was effective and did better than the placebo group. But the placebo, if they hadn't discarded all those people with COVID and just dropped them from the trial, the placebo group and the injected group would have had pretty much the same number of COVID infections and been about 19% effective instead of what they claimed, 95%. So I, I like when we describe things in detail, uh, but then we have to kind of go back and remind people what we're talking about. We're talking about lying. Right. We're talking about a level of corruption and evil that is almost unprecedented. That this is this is a level of lying to the public that is so despicable, so evil that it beggars belief. It's difficult for us, and it's it's certainly difficult for me to comprehend right. a that people would do this. Uh, B, that they would be allowed to do this, that you wouldn't have everyone screaming in a free culture, theoretically, where we're able to do something about this. Uh, and that even now, as you've put this information forward, just tremendous silence from all kinds of media outlets, not even interested in maybe there's something to this. That's to me oh. kind of the shocking news, basically. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, and I agree with you. I, I know I, you know, I get in the weeds, but then I'll, I do need to step back so people really understand how massive this is. So just remember that starting in November, 2020, there was a big rollout of this injection, millions and billions of dollars of taxpayer money uh, were spent telling you to overcome your hesitancy to take it. Uh, our entire um, White House, all the way up to the president, badgered and harassed you to take it. Uh, you know, news outlets were completely bought up in the service of telling you to take it and the FDA, meaning the White House and Pfizer knew from the very beginning that the injection was pretty much no better than chance and or no better than the placebo, meaning people who didn't get the injection. And they got their claims to efficacy by dropping from the study people who had been injected, who got sick with COVID. And but then- yeah. Right. Sorry. No. And just then to, to remind everyone, as, as our author does, subsequent to that and, and people up the chain of command at the FDA, you know, knew this and, and lied, you know, uh, colluded in covering up the fact that the injection didn't stop anyone from getting COVID unless you drop from the trial all the people who got COVID. And that basically the last people left were eight people who were injected and 172 people in the placebo group. And on the basis of that, in November of 2020, they claimed that this was a safe and effective vaccine. And you had to lose your job. Your kids couldn't go to school. You couldn't join the arm. You know, you had to leave the military. You had to leave being a pilot, all the things, if you didn't go along with this massive, massive lie okay. orchestrated from the start. And it also meant that all of those deaths, because, you know, there are 1,223 deaths in three months in the Pfizer documents, many of them within a day or two uh, after the injection, the people who tolerated those deaths because they claimed that the risk benefit analysis, you know, in a greater level saved everyone from COVID knew that they were lying, that they were killing people and maiming people knowing that the injection did not save people from COVID. Okay. So we've got a couple of things going on here. A, the, the, uh, the so-called vaccine is a joke. It doesn't work. That's, that's number one. That would be enough, you know, to shoot people. Because you can't even believe that they're lying, that you've got to do this thing, but then they know this thing doesn't work. It, sheer lunacy. But the second piece, which is more evil, is that not only does it not work, it causes unbelievable harm in a thousand directions to human beings who uh, willingly, naively, innocently said yes we will take this. Everyone's saying we've got to take this for the greater good. Those people were used and abused and harmed and continue this minute to be harmed. Um, and when you call this, you know, the greatest crime in the history of humanity, ladies and gentlemen, do you understand uh, if that is not a preposterous exaggeration, do you understand what those words mean? If that's true, the greatest crime, it, it is something that is, uh, you know, people talk, Naomi, about something like biblical proportions, you know, like the flood, 
uh, or something beyond anything, unprecedented. That's what we're talking about. And right now we're in a position of playing catch up because most people are not perceiving this. Most people don't get this. Most people are just going on with their lives, not understanding. I mean, it, it is a little bit like the death camps when we began to uncover like, oh, oh, look what the Nazis have done. They have murdered millions and millions and millions of innocents, of civilians. Look what they've done. It's a level of evil that it's almost impossible to process, basically. It takes decades to process how evil it is. That's what we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And what's so interesting to me is, as a cultural critic is that right now, as more and more evidence you know, is hard to ignore, even in the world of legacy media with all of its lies, the narrative I'm hearing in kind of liberal elite land is we did the best with the information we had at the time. But what my team has found with Report 72 is that they didn't do, that is not true. In no way is it true. All the things, the masking, the vaccine passports, the destruction of our unified society into a tier society based on discrimination, the job losses, you know, the, the athletes dropping dead, all of it was based on a lie. All of it was only possible because Pfizer dropped all the people, virtually all the people who got COVID with the injection from the trial, the FDA knew, the FDA, you know, colluded, the White House oh, knew. Look, they have, they have to say something. So when they right. say we did the best we could, that's that's very similar, ladies and gentlemen, uh, to at the Nuremberg yes. trial. Oh, just they said, the we, we were just following orders. Don't you understand? We were just following orders. Goebbels said it. Uh, they all said this. Eichmann said it. We're just following orders. They have to say something, uh, but we have to call them on their lie. What they're saying is as despicable, as monstrous as anything in history. Uh, and it is difficult for us, I keep saying, to process it, but process it we must. Very important. We're talking to Naomi Wolf. We'll talk about more cheerful things when we come back. Uh, it's the Eric Metaxas Show. Please go to ericmetaxas.com. Sign up for the newsletter so you can share this video uh, with your friends and enemies. We'll be right back. Folks, welcome back. We're talking to Naomi Wolf. Naomi, um, if people want to find you tell folks where they can find you because I want people to follow you and to know what you're doing. Thank you. Uh, well, you can find all of the reports from the Pfizer documents for free on dailyclout.io, but we also have a book of them. And I'm sorry, I'm going to leave my seat for just to, to physically show you, which I've not been able to do in the past. There it is. There it is. This the is book. The uh, research analysis reports. And this, I smiled before the break, uh, Eric, when you said, you know, share this with your friends and your enemies, because I actually understand that people are giving this book to their doctors, you know, to their yeah. kids, their adult children who called them crazy and called them conspiracy theorists. Um, you know, all the people who dismiss their concerns uh, and, and so do that. And you can do that by going to Amazon um, and ordering the Pfizer documents analysis reports. And you can find me on Substack um, as well. Well, so it's dailyclout.io. Correct. Mm -hmm. Okay. Clout, C-L-O-U-T. Like Babe Ruth was the Kaiser of clout. C-L-O-U-T. <laughs> clout. Daisyclout.io. Daisyclout.io. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and obviously uh, they can find this book Folks, you're living in historic times for good or for ill, um, but we want you to be awake to what's happening. So, Naomi, to some extent, um, you're you're one of those people who in processing this looks like satanic evil that has been unleashed on the world. Uh, it has turned you logically uh, toward the good, toward God. Um, you're reading the Bible uh, publicly, talking about it, and I'm uh, really interested in a lot, a lot of that. But, but also, you have, for some reason, gravitated toward the Geneva Bible. So, tell us ab about that. What, what is, uh, what is it about the Geneva Bible in particular uh, that appealed to you? Yeah. Um, 
Well, it's it's really true the way you summarize the reason that I began to, you know, try to find the most faithful translation. And then ultimately, you know, I, I also went back to the Hebrew. Um, and it, it is because doing this work every day, seeing what human beings have done to other human beings, it does it, it does explode all of your categories, right? Even, you know, even as the granddaughter of a woman who lost nine brothers and sisters in the Holocaust, uh, even being kind of Jewish, you know, with that legacy, even that couldn't prepare me for just, you know, the details, what I've been witnessing, this, this is a mass grave. They've made the planet a mass grave and we're, we're only going to see the dimensions of it in, in the years to come, but specifically seeing things like, um, you know, one of our reports shows that they knew that they were um, causing spontaneous abortions and miscarriages. And, and then they passed that report on April 20th, 2021 to the White House. And three days later, Rochelle Walensky gave a White House press conference saying to pregnant women to inject themselves um, with the mRNA vaccine. And she had this in hand, right? But, but don't eat sushi or drink champagne, whatever you do. Exactly. And, 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 exactly. And, and, and only smoke one pack of cigarettes a day because, you know, the fetus, very, very sensitive, could be affected, but definitely get the experimental vaccine, quote unquote. So, so to see like examples of such a demonic interference in human family, human integrity, you know, the most sacred things we have, babies, um, you know, intimacy, childbirth, lactation, uh, it, it was vertiginous. And, you know, as I've written in an earlier essay, you and I have spoken about, um, I, I began to, to feel that, you know, a, an evil larger than the human was at work. Uh, and so I began to think, well, if, if evil is mustering this much um, kind of impressiveness and resiliency, it must be aimed at something good. And so paradoxically, I ended up believing, not ended up, it's a journey, but it, currently I believe in, I think I believe in God more literally than I did before all this happened, because look at, look at his enemies, <laughs> you know, like they're very, but it's pure logic. I mean, it, it, look, this happened to me in 1988. I read uh, uh, M Scott Peck, this Harvard psychiatrist wrote a book called the people of the lie dealing with evil from a psychiatric point of view and sort of solving for X and saying some cases there was no other category for what I was seeing. He says that this was evil. It seemed like personal demonic evil. And if you allow for that, then of course you say, well, okay, then if that's real, then maybe God would be real. It's perfectly logical, but most people don't find God that way, I guess. Yeah, no, it's paradoxical. But so I, you know, I also felt like, well, I want to know what, what God said. <laughs> and I also was kind of looking for operating instructions for the current moment, because, you know, if we are going to survive, and I'm literally in that existential place of not knowing if humanity is, is going to survive this, certainly we're going to be changed. Um, there have been other times uh, described in the Hebrew Bible when not in the New Testament, but, you know, no offense to the New Testament, just didn't cover that that broad a period of time. But there have been many, not many, but sometimes in the Hebrew Bible where humanity was almost wiped out. And God was super clear about why, <laughs> you know, and what we can do next time to not be wiped out. Um, and so... I wanted to know, like, what do we have to do now? Um, or what can we learn? What can we learn from the flood? What can we learn from um, the Babylonian exile? What can we learn from, you know, the story of Haman? You know, all of these. Okay, hang on. Uh, we're going to go to a break. When we come back, we're going to find out some of the things that Naomi learned. Don't go away. A delight to talk to you. Uh, I'm sorry we're out of time today, but we'll find time again because this is too important uh, to slough off. Uh, we will talk to you again. Just so grateful. Thank you, Naomi Wolf. Thank you so much. Take care. On this episode of Newt's World, Jesse Kelly has written a new book, The Anti-Communist Manifesto, and he discusses the daily assault Americans are facing on our freedoms from the insidious communist movement in this country, from weaponizing race, sex, and gender to hijacking our schools, communism threatens to destroy our cherished American way of life. The communist has turned every American institution to a battlefield, 
from local school boards to corporate boardrooms and beyond. Jesse lays out a realistic plan to retake America institution by institution. He's one of the most entertaining and fearless conservatives in America. I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Jesse Kelly. He is a U.S. Marine veteran, a former congressional candidate, and hosts Premier Network's The Jesse Kelly Show and First TV's I'm Right with Jesse Kelly. Jesse, welcome, and thank you for joining me on Newt's World. Shoot, it's an honor for me to be here. It's an honor to sit and get to gab with Newt Gingrich for a little while. That works for me. Well, that's great. Jesse, why did you decide to write the Anti-Communist Manifesto? Well, I am an anti-communist. I don't call myself a conservative or a libertarian or a nationalist. I'm an anti-communist first and foremost, because unless these people are defeated, none of the rest of the stuff matters. They have to be defeated first. And I talk about anti-communism all the time, how we're not near aggressive enough with these people. We're not taking the threat that they pose to us nearly serious enough, not even close. And I talk about this all the time. And I had been approached a few years ago to write a book. Hey, we write a book. And I had always said, no, 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 no. Because the honest truth is I hate writing. I despise it. I don't mind. Obviously, love talking on the radio. I love doing TV. And there are some people who are just... They want to sit down and they write. If you told me I had to do a three-hour radio show right now, Newt, I don't think my heart rate would jump up at all. It would be, oh, nice. Okay, let's do some radio. But if you, Newt Gingrich, told me I needed to sit down and write a thousand words, just a thousand words, I would get that feeling in the pit of my stomach like a lot of people do when they have to give a speech in front of people or something. That's how much I hate writing. But I am extremely passionate about anti-communism. I mean it all the way. I see what is happening in this country. And finally, about a year ago, they approached me and they said, hey, I know you don't want to write a book. What if you wrote a book just about anti-communism, just about opposing these people and taking these people on? And I didn't even hesitate. I hadn't thought of it, but I said to myself, oh my gosh, instantly, yes, I'm in. That is the one I will write. I don't know that I will ever write another one, but that book I will write. And here we are. What did you learn in the process of writing? A couple things. One, we talk about how they lie all the time, whatever people choose to call them. I mean, you can call them leftists or liberals or honestly Democrats today, but they really are just communists at heart. That's what they are. It's not just that they lie. It's how often and how honest they are with each other about the need to lie. Now, because so much of the book, as you pointed out, I break down different issues that people won't recognize on their surface as being blatant communism today, the LGBTQ stuff and the Black Lives Matter stuff and things like that. But I went into the history of so much of it and then what it looks like in the modern era and then how we combat it with each issue. But the history portion was the most fascinating for me because these people back in the day, it was letters. They would write letters back and forth to each other or pen articles And it was always the basis of all of it was we can't let them know what we're doing. We have to be careful about this. Hey, we have to make sure we word this right so we don't know what we're doing. It's such a despicable religion. Communism is. It's so destructive. It's so horrible that from the very beginning, from Lenin to now, it's always been lied about. And they know it has to be lied about. I don't have to lie about any of the policies I want. You may disagree with them. That's fine. But I don't have to lie to you about them. It is the basis of their religion that they must hide what they're doing. And they are so open with each other about that. No, no, no. Hey, you're not lying enough. Hey, you need to lie more. Hey, we got to keep that quiet. Hey, let's make sure they don't find out. You see this manifested today with every dirtball teacher you see a video of talking about how they're going to try to tell your young son to change his gender behind your back and don't tell your parents. We won't let your parents know what we're doing. It's all about deception at all times. And that hit me hard. I knew they were liars. I didn't know how honest they were about it. What made you decide to use the word communism, which is a very strong, very compelling word? Well, one, that's what they are. Two, The value of labels is lost on the right, and it is not lost on the communists. Pause for a moment and think about how many Democrats in the United States of America, and there's all kinds of polling data out there, how many Democrats in the United States of America 
believe that they are opposing Nazis or white supremacists or both or some combination of the two. The percentage is staggering. It's something like 60, 70 percent believe that there are Nazi white supremacists they're opposing. I've never met a Nazi or a white supremacist in my 41 years on the planet. Do they exist? Oh, yeah, I'm sure they do. It's always five dirt balls in a Klan outfit on the courthouse steps in Kentucky surrounded by 500 people who want to kill them. So they've taken something that doesn't even exist at all and convinced their side that that's what they're opposing. And they did it for a very smart reason. They got their people in the right mindset. So these people on the left today, they feel like they are fighting the forces of evil and that they are the force of good because they know they're up against Nazis and Hitler. And meanwhile, on the right, we try to baby step our people into it and try to use the nicest terms humanly possible for these demons. Oh, he's left leaning. Oh, he's kind of liberal. Oh, he's just a he's just a Democrat type thing. And therefore, our people are not in the right mindset. Mindset leads to action. Our people think they're in the friendly game of cribbage and their people think they're fighting World War Two. So who's going to win that? And plus, they are communists. This is something, again, I write about this in the book. They were very purposeful about this, too. Communism has taken a different form in every country it's ever been. In the Soviet Union, it was the urban poor. And then the Soviets, when they were exporting it to China, they were yelling at Mao and his friends saying, hey, you got to focus on the urban poor. And Mao would yell back and say, no, you're an idiot. It's not like that here. We don't have malcontented urban poor. We have malcontented rural poor. We have to focus on the rural poor here. It looked different in Cambodia. Here, this took place about the 60s and 70s. The communists were frustrated with their inability for it to catch on here because they kept going for the workers, whether they be urban or rural. Let's go to the workers. Let's go to the workers. And it never caught on because our workers have a great standard of living in this country. Well, communism is not about workers or any of this stuff. Communism is just the religion of the malcontent. That's it. You're looking for any society's malcontents. You find them, you weaponize them to break the society apart. We didn't have miserable workers here. They decided to shift it and make it cultural. That's why they infiltrated the civil rights movement, because we understandably had a lot of black people who weren't that pleased with America at the time. That's why they focus so much on all the endless LGBTQ stuff. That's why they focus on climate stuff. We have malcontents in these areas. Feminists, you find the malcontents. And you use them like water to break up a rock. You pour it into the cracks in the rock. You freeze it. You break up the strongest rock possible. That's what communism is. So you talk at length about the communist role in education. Walk us through that. How do you see the degree to which they've taken over the school systems and the universities? Well, it's the most valuable thing they ever took over by a mile. And frankly, everything else we see now that frustrates us, it's all downstream of them taking over the education system. Anyone in warfare understands that supply lines are everything. What's that old saying that amateurs study tactics and professionals study logistics? Supply lines are everything. Well, there are 4 million new college graduates every year, and 3 million of them are card-carrying communists because the communists realized they needed to take over the education system in the country. It's the first thing they went after, and I go over the history of that, too, in the book. They took it over, and what they do is they soft-sell it at first. Now, they're getting harder about it these days, but they soft-sell it at first. You don't have a third-grade history teacher up there teaching his kids that uh, America sucks. That's not what he's doing. He's going to present history to them. Okay, so what is American history? It's American history this year. What are we going to teach little Johnny about? Well, of course, we're going to have to teach him about the genocide of the Native Americans. That was really horrendous. And then, of course, America is slavery. We'll do a couple months on slavery. We'll do 15 minutes on the Constitution, but a couple months on slavery. And then we move right from that into segregation. And, oh, would you look at that? The school year is up, out of time class. Anyway, that's what America is. So they start early on. Teaching kids that America sucks, America sucks, America sucks. And by the time these kids graduate from college, these kids are not college kids the way we look at them now. We kind of roll our eyes and scoff at them. They are weaponized communist foot soldiers. 
And they have always been, it's always been the young people, Mao's Red Guard, what the Khmer Rouge used. It was 14 and 15 year olds beating people to death under Pol Pot's regime. We look at kids and how they've been weaponized and we dismiss them because of their age or because they have noodle arms and we should not. They've been trained. The communist goes after them for a reason. Lenin talked about it. Give me four years of your nation's youth and I'll own everything. I'm paraphrasing, but that's pretty much what he said. The kids are where it's at. Why do you think they're in Disney? Why do you think they're in Nickelodeon these days? Why do you think they're telling your daughter to chop her breasts off when she's 14 years old? They want to break your children away from you and break them emotionally because that's how the recruitment process begins. How did conservatives or just everyday normal people, how did they so totally lose control of the universities? It's human nature. I'm hard on the right a lot, Newt, because I don't think they did enough to stop this and we still don't take it seriously enough. At the same time, I am sympathetic because it is human nature to ignore the real threat until it's too late. That's just human beings will deny the reality of something dangerous until it's too late. The communists originally didn't own everything. And when you go through the history of it, which I do a lot of that, you see how they were just the street radicals first. They were in a couple unions, in a couple teachers unions, a couple journalists. And eventually they worked their way into the administration of these universities. And that's what they do so well. The communists seize the choke points. They seize choke points. And this is what I mean. We will see some child drag show somewhere in some blood red area, Oklahoma, some small town in Oklahoma, 99% Republican. And all of a sudden there's a child drag show and everyone's mad about it. No one understands how that happens. Well, I've dug into these things and I'm telling you how it happens every time. The communist understands he's a minority in that little Oklahoma town. He understands that, but he's not worried about majority or percentages. He's worried about power. And so what he'll do is he'll find the choke points of that town. Yeah, he's a minority, but he's going to go down and become the city manager. He's going to become the public librarian. He's going to find the choke points of power. And that's why he will force his will on an area where he's outnumbered. They did the same thing in the universities. That's where they seized the administration. And then they only were hiring these card-carrying communists into the administration, many of them communist terrorists, I might point out. I write about this in the book, too. We talk about these weather underground guys killing cops and bombing things. These people didn't end up spending their lives in prison. They're spending their lives teaching your child at the expensive university you're sending them to. They all got professorships in the end. So we took these communists, many communist terrorists. They got the administration. They started bringing these people into the university system at the same time, purging anyone who doesn't think like that. And the right was just blissfully unaware because we were rolling our eyes because they're just college kids. Or we use that old line. And as much as I love Churchill, I hate this frigging line. Well, if he's under 30 and not a liberal, he has no heart. And if he's over 30 and not a conservative, he has no brain. That's insane. The communist doesn't think like that at all. You don't have to be a liberal when you're under 30. You just have to have been taught properly. But we've kind of dismissed it as, well, once they get a paycheck, they'll come around. They're not coming around. They're now in the corporate boardrooms rubbing it in your face every single day. They didn't come around. They kept moving their way up through society, and now they have all the institutions. You also talk about how we respond to all this. How do you rally the country to take its own country back? One, we have to acknowledge the threat, and that is something we still have not done. We're slowly waking up, but that's first and foremost. And Until you know what you're dealing with and acknowledge what you're dealing with, you can't begin. But then we think about this wrongly. I understand why this is. The right has a severe savior complex. We want somebody to come fix it. Somebody. Trump, get Trump elected again. He'll fix it. Ron DeSantis will fix it all. Let's just get Ron DeSantis in there. When that's insane, it's too rotted. It's too corrupt. No one person can fix it. But you can protect and preserve your community. We're starting to see this around the country where people are taking back school boards. They're taking back city councils. They're taking back board of supervisors. We are in this for a decades-long fight. It will not come from Washington, D.C. It will come locally. Seize your community first. Protect your community first, and then we'll expand out from there. That's what they did. They didn't begin in Washington, D.C. They took over every school board in the country. 
That's why your child, you think you're growing up in blood red America and your child comes home one day with pink hair and thinks he's a woman because you didn't realize they took over the school boards and you're not protected. We need to take them back and we can. There's all kinds of easy wins. There's so much soft underbelly with the communists in this country, but we don't acknowledge it and we don't fight like we can win it. We think about the presidency and that's what will fix it all when that's ridiculous. You know what? Give them the presidency for 100 more years if you give me all the school boards and I'll win in the end. I used to say that Ronald Reagan defeated communism in Moscow, but lost to it in the United States. (laughs) It's very sadly 100 percent true. And people should also understand that the Soviets were very, very smart about this, and they were very purposeful about this. It's not the Soviets anymore, obviously, courtesy of Reagan. The Chinese handle a lot of this now, and now it's mostly Americans who do it to other Americans. Most of these people don't even know that's what they are. They don't know they're communists. They don't have any idea. But the Soviets knew they would not be able to defeat us economically, probably not be able to defeat us militarily. But they saw a real soft underbelly in this country of malcontents, and they went after them. They were very purposeful about this. There's several great books out now of KGB files where they describe in detail how they would infect and infiltrate the West. And that's just what happened to us. And the average American shouldn't feel bad about that. You don't have to be happy, but that happens. That's very difficult to fight against something like that, especially if leadership doesn't realize it and pounce on it immediately. We just kind of got infiltrated while we weren't looking. That's the problem. One last area I want to just talk about. You have a fascinating section on the parallels of destroying monuments between the Soviet takeover of Russia and what's been happening in the U.S. Can you sort of expand on that? Sure. This is something the communist needs to do. He does it very, very well. And I kind of use this example a little bit in my book. But if I showed up at your house tonight, Newt, I'm not going to do that. Don't worry. But if I showed up at your house tonight and I wanted to burn your house to the ground, you would not let me. Now, why? What do you care that much? It's just boards and drywalls and things like that. But your home is more than that to you. Your home is, oh, that's where I sit with my wife. That's where the kids open Christmas gifts. This is, oh, look, we used to play with the dog back here. You are moored. You are tied to your home. And that's why it's a home. And therefore, you wouldn't let somebody destroy it. But if I can unmoor you from that home, then you'll be more apt to let me destroy it. You might help me do it. That's what you're seeing the communists do right now in this country. Lenin and Stalin did it. Mao was tearing up the graves of Confucius and tearing down the Buddhist temples. Everywhere the communist has gone, he has renamed things. He has torn down monuments because he's trying to unmoor the people from their nation so they will let him destroy it and remake their nation. Today, you can't find two elected Republicans who will defend having a Confederate statue up of Robert E. Lee because they don't want to be called racist or feel icky. If you cannot articulate why you shouldn't let them tear down a statue of Robert E. Lee, you're not ready to take these people on. They don't care about Robert E. Lee. They don't care about the Confederacy. They don't care about slavery. They sure as heck don't care about black people. They care about burning your country to ash. And they understand the Confederacy is one of those things that's so uncomfortable for people to defend that you won't. So you'll let them get their foot in the door. And the next thing you know, they're removing a Teddy Roosevelt statue from New York City, which is exactly what they did. They don't care about the things they tell you to care about. They care about burning everything down. But we don't approach it that way. To this day, you'll get every weenie Republican senator. Well, I mean, I never was a fan of Robert E. Lee. As if he's totally oblivious to what's happening right now. It's not about the Confederacy. It's about destroying all of your history. And they've done it effectively. I don't know if you've been recently, Newt, but my son just went on a field trip for school. He went to Mount Vernon. You cannot believe how much they have destroyed the legacy of all the founders of this country, from Jefferson to Washington. He went to Jefferson's home. Just everyone wrap your mind around this. He went to Jefferson's home. He saw tons of references to the slaves Jefferson had, to slavery, all kinds of things. There was not one thing about the Declaration of Independence, which Jefferson wrote at Jefferson's home. That's what they do. And that's why they start with Robert E. Lee. They're trying to break your history away from you. Don't let them. Nations have histories. All of them. Good history, bad history, all of them. Keep it. Now, you make a very, very compelling case. I want to thank you, Jesse, for joining us. I want you to know that 
we're going to link to the anti-communist manifesto whose message is so important to the country. It'll be on our show page, encouraging people to buy it. And I really appreciate your voice. I'm glad you decided you would write a book, but I think you're going to be an important voice in defending America and in taking on the left. And I just want to thank you for taking the time to be with us. Thank you, Newt. It's an honor to be here talking to you. I'll tell you that much. Someone I've admired for a long time. Coming from you, that means the world. I appreciate it, sir. We now have black and white evidence that the FBI interfered in the 2016 election. And then when they failed to get their candidate elected, Hillary Clinton, then they just set out to destroy the Trump administration. So then go back, go up to 2020. It was the CIA this time that got involved in the 2020 election with those 51 former intel agents who talked about the Hunter Biden laptop as total Russian disinformation. Mm. So they've gotten away with it for two elections. They're for sure going to get away with it, try to get away with it in 24, right? Because there's no consequence. The difference is in 2024, the evidence is there. We now have the Durham investigation. We have all the congressional investigations. There is now hard evidence that there was election interference by the U.S. intelligence agencies and the Department of Justice. They've got to be terrified, those individuals have to be terrified, that a Republican president comes in in the 2024 election with a Republican attorney general, investigates them and charges them all with the crimes they've committed over the last eight years. Well, we'll see about that. You're right. There are questions around these elections because of this interference. Do you think there will be election interference then in 24? Take it to the bank. They will absolutely interfere in 2024. We're not sure how, but they will absolutely interfere, not only because they're not going to like whoever the Republican candidate is, but because they're going to protect their own hides. That's why they were talking to their own people, and the whistleblowers have brought this up, that they were told, don't put anything on paper, just tell us orally. They knew that they were doing stuff wrong. They knew that they were going to be liable for prosecution. Yeah, it's it's too bad. I wish the media were more curious about all of this. Unfortunately, the media takes the narrative of the Democrat Party and runs with it and then tries to cancel anybody who's not on board. Well, they're in the same position. They, they can't possibly admit they were wrong because that sort of cuts under it, it just undercuts their whole reason for being. So they're going to continue to have the fake narrative and they're going to continue to cover up and pretend that nothing bad went on. I mean, they're all in it together. This is what the terrible thing is. These people are selling the country. They're just selling us out, not only to yeah. foreign leaders, but they're, they're interfering in our elections. They're tearing up the Constitution. Why? Because they want to protect their jobs. They want to protect their ratings. It just, it just is, I never thought I would be this upset about how anybody in the government was performing, but this is just a gut punch to the American people. It it really is, and it's because you're a patriot. You don't want to see this kind of injustice. I agree with you. KT, it's good to see you. Thank you.